My life used to feel like I was stuck on autopilot, trapped in the same thought loops, worries, and fears. Then something major happened. Enter psychedelics. My name is Kat Walsh, and you're listening to Trip On This. Join me as we journey together into these mysterious realms, discussing everything from personal transformation, otherworldly experiences, and practical at-home tips. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the land of limitless possibilities. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trip On This. My next guest is Will Padilla-Brown. Will is a mycologist, a citizen scientist, a social entrepreneur, and the founder of Mycosymbiotics, a decentralized research effort based out of Pennsylvania. This episode is going to be good for anyone who's interested in growing magic mushrooms, foraging mushrooms. We talk all about permaculture. What is permaculture? Personally, I thought it was a lot to do with regenerative agriculture, but Will talks about so many different examples of how permaculture is actually the practice of really looking at nature to assist us with creating all different types of systems within society. So really cool lessons that I learned around all of this. This info, this episode is just packed with great information. And it's cool coming from someone who didn't go a traditional path. He really created his own uh, path forward. And I love to hear when people, you know, carve out the life that they want to live. So I think you will all very much enjoy this episode. Few things before the episode begins. If you're not following me on socials, I'll put it all in the description of this episode. And of course, if you're liking this episode, if you know anybody who's interested in growing mushrooms, foraging, or just wants to hear about permaculture and other sustainable ways that we can live our lives, share this episode with them. And with that, please enjoy this next episode with Will Padilla Brown. All right, Will Padilla Brown, thank you so much for coming on to trip on this I'm really looking forward to asking you a whole bunch of questions around foraging and growing and permaculture. It's going to be a fun one. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's going to be sick. Awesome. So I kind of want to just like jump into some fun stuff and then we're going to kick it back and introduce you more. But you just got back from an interesting trip in Oaxaca, Mexico. You were foraging for wild uh, psilocybin mushrooms Sounds like you were barcoding and, and doing the genetic sequencing. What can you tell us about this trip? Sweet. Yeah. So I went down for the Entheome uh, Foundation, Entheome Organization's uh, first annual research summit. Um, so this was in San Jose del Pacifico. This is where uh, the West made touch with uh, uh, Maria Sabina, where, where Gordon Watson met Maria Sabina and a lot of our uh, connection to uh, psilocybin mushrooms actually originates. Um, so uh, the Zapotec people live down there and the mushroom that they use mostly, uh, they call derumbes, mm-hmm. um, and it's named after them. So in the Latin name or the, uh, in the taxonomy, uh, we call the the most common mushroom that we find out there, Psilocybe zapotecorum. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were looking around for psilocybin mushrooms and also other different types of mushrooms because um, they, they have a, a whole host of mushrooms that they eat, wild mushrooms, and um, and some of them are are not necessarily described. Um, so we went out there even looking for other mushrooms besides psychedelic mushrooms. And uh, we set up a research station at a little resort retreat center that was up in the mountains there. 
it was it was pretty like low tech we like lost electricity a few times there wasn't any wi-fi or things like that we had to run some of our stuff off a car battery at some point with the inverter wow. uh, battery pack stuff like that um, but we did pcr uh, uh, which is the basis for dna barcoding um, so in a very low tech situation we were able to extract dna from some of these mushrooms we found including um, the Salaspi zapaticorum and then also Salaspi uh, mulercula. It's another species that, um, that is lacking description um, that was found during our trip. Um, so we collected the DNA from it and amplified it on site. Um, and we're working on getting all the sequences done um, due to some of the uh, power issues and some of the things that we experienced during the time. We weren't able to go through with the full amount of research that we wanted to do, but we did prove that we could do a lot of sensitive research in a very um, uh, non-laboratory area, cool. for lack of better words. Yeah, 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 totally. That's a, so. What what is the process around DNA sequencing? I, you know, I've I've seen spores and you know, in like little what's that called, like a syringe. But I'm super novice when it comes to this. I'm just curious, like what what is that process? What what kind of technology are you working with to sequence, even on that very basic level that you're saying, not laboratory esque, but what kind of ma- machines etc um, so as far as like molecular biology goes which is like the study of dna the study of, of molecular or like the tiniest uh, compounds if you were to compare it to computers to cell phones that that transition of a computer being a super expensive device that was very technical to use you had to like go to school to learn how to use it till everybody knows how to use a computer and it's in everybody's pocket mm-hmm. that happened for dna equipment and molecular biology equipment way faster except it's still in this like technical niche space that like not everybody needs a DNA sequencer. Everybody has one uh, yet. Right. So, um, but the, but the technology is there. So there's companies like mini PCR um, that are making these small DNA equipment, uh, pieces of DNA equipment that you can like, you know, carry around in a little backpack or something like that. Um, so what all of this entails is, you know, we find a wild mushroom in the, in the forest and, you know, I do this for plants, algae, um, I haven't done it for animals per se, but I could if I needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, you find your sample in the wild. You take a small uh, amount of its tissue, uh, cells, whatever you, whatever you have, like a leaf, a little piece mm-hmm. of the mushroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and in little tubes, you extract the DNA from the piece of material that you have. So basically mm-hmm. that just re- inv- involves um, knowing how to um, use like chemicals, a little bit of chemicals and like um, actually like pressure like grinding things to get the cells and the DNA separated. It may sound complicated, but it's if you if anybody makes plant extracts or ever had a tincture or anything like that before, that's an extract of the plant, but it's not the actual like leaf of the plant anymore. Right. It's like what was in the leaf. Mm-hmm. So you want the DNA, it's inside of it. You have to get it out. So we go through a little bit of procedures, which mostly happens in little tubes um, to get the DNA away from the from the material. Um, and then from there, we use these little machines called PCR machines. It stands for polymerase chain reaction. I know that might sound like super sciencey, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, this little machine takes your DNA, splits it in half, and it gives it a copy. So DNA, uh, it looks like a little ladder, a spiral mm-hmm. ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two sides of e- of the DNA strand. A-, a always goes with T, C always goes with G. So if you split it apart and you have one half of the DNA strand, you can know what the other half is because it'll always be the same copy. Um, so we can use this little machine to make a bunch of copies by splitting the DNA and making it come back together with itself. Um, and, and the reason that we do this is because one strand of DNA is hard to 
um, to read. It's hard to do anything okay. with it. It's so tiny. Um, so we need to make a lot of it to be able to see what it is or do anything with it. So we make a bunch of copies of it, then we can actually see it. Um, um, we can make it like fluoresce with different uh, other chemicals and we can actually see it. Um, and then we can actually send that off to somebody for sequencing. Um, and sequencing is just getting the actual code, like knowing what the code is. Like mm -hmm. does the A follow the T, follow the C, follow the G. And um, what this does, what this tells us is, you know, what, what the DNA will make. Oh, okay. Like how, what will it code for? Got it. Yeah. So, and, um, and barcoding is just using one gene from the organism that all scientists agreed to use to identify it. So there's, or, there's genes that are in a bunch of, or, in, in every organism that don't necessarily do anything that we know, but they all have them. Like every mushroom has this one gene. Every plant has this one gene. So we'll use, use those to identify them. Um, and we, and there's like a, a whole international database that once you have that gene from your sample, mm -hmm. you can upload it. And it'll say if anybody else has uploaded that same exact one. And if not, then you have an organism that's new that nobody else knows about or cool. you can describe it. Have you like have that. you found so, any new species? I haven't. Yeah. Uh, well, I have I've found new species, but I haven't done the DNA work Got fully it. to like name a new species or anything. I'm like sure that. that's really I'm sure unless you're going to like the Amazon and like deep parts of the Amazon where like there's a lot of people that still there from what I understand, like just in the Amazon that we probably know a quarter of the plants that means we don't understand like three quarters of like what the wildlife is there so but in some of those really hard to get places so i imagine that's probably mm -hmm. why but hopefully as someone who is on this path that you do end up finding a new discovery how cool would that be yeah yeah i mean it would be amazing i mean we we did find a, a new species in mexico so hopefully we get to go through with the whole process on yeah. that and um just to leave another quick note Anybody can find a new species of mushroom or fungus in their backyard. There's so much that's like undiscovered be just because it wasn't bright and colorful in somebody's face. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot to discover as far as mushrooms go. Plants, they're a little bit more in our face. More people yeah. seeing them and, and interacted with them. Yeah, but yeah. there's a whole world to discover with fungi. Cool. So um, one of my questions, too, is like coming back to at least on the on the psilocybin th side of things does your sequencing or does any of the work that you guys entail also come back to like understanding how much psilocin is in a particular mushroom, right? Like how, how potent is this? Like where, where does that fall? How do we know? Is that, is that something that you um, have you've ever worked with? So one of the scientists that was with us, um, he's a professor at a university in Ohio. I cannot remember for the life of me, what the university is or what his last name is, but I know it's Professor Jason something. Um, and uh, he presented to us one of the days while we were in Mexico, he presented to us on uh, psil psilocybin gene expression. Mm -hmm. um, so his work has been around uh, evolutionary biology and understanding um, you know, when the genes for psilocybin evolved and why they possibly arose. Mm. Um, and there are some very, very interesting correlations at the, in the timeline as to when psilocybin arose on our planet and the timeline for Homo sapiens evolving and things like yeah. that. Really interesting correlation. Like but, Stone, Stone Age theory? Um, Is it similar to that? Yeah. 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 He was he, like the, his presentation was specifically questioning the Stone Age theory. Mm. And uh, I mean, with, with modern genetic research, we found out that, that, psilocybin containing mushrooms started to evolve these gene clusters 
like like a, just a little bit before primates started evolving into higher you know primates into homo sapiens sapiens things like interesting. this interesting well this is um a... so really really interesting correlations but that yeah. but to answer your question there are genes that you can look at that will say not how much psilocin per se but that to say that this gene can produce um psilocin and psilocybin which people are using to find you know psilocybin producing mushrooms or just uh, alongside with analytics but finding other mushrooms that produce psilocybin mm -hmm. or other fungi like the one that was in the cicada right Right, right, right. So I love, I love that we just started here because I think your background is really cool, and I wanted people to hear also the the work you're doing, and just it's pretty evident your knowledge around this space. Talk to us now about your citizen scientist. You're a mycologist. You're a social entrepreneur. You're you're working in the field of permaculture, and yet you haven't had any, I guess, want to in quotes like formal training, right? Talk to us about what this journey has been like for you. What is a citizen scientist? How do you define it? How how'd you get into all this? Yeah, so a citizen scientist is like a, like pretty much like a science uh, somebody that's practicing the scientific method informally. Yeah. Um, that's the best way that I could describe it. And what and what do I mean by like formally or informally? Most people that are practicing the scientific method are practicing it in some sort of uh, institutional laboratory. Mm -hmm for a corporation or for a university. Um, so there there hasn't been uh, historically, well, I mean, historically prior to corporatization of the world, a lot of people were independently scientists. Um, mm -hmm. So I feel like it's kind of a return to that, but um, uh, so citizen scientists are people that are, you know, doing science in their home and their spare bedroom or in a community setting um, with, you know, independent funding or community funding, things like this, studying things that, that institutional scientists may not always look at. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I pretty I got into citizen science um, through permaculture design, really. Um, I was, uh, I dropped out of high school when I was 16 and I started studying a lot of things on my own. Um, I started like, I became so fascinated with quantum physics. I don't think I would ever like call myself a quantum physicist per se besides the fact that I'm living in this reality and subjected to a multidimensional experience. Maybe yeah. that makes me a quantum physicist. Maybe yeah. that makes all of us quantum physicists for even know how to like stand up and not fall over and totally. stuff like that. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. But, uh, um, uh, so yeah, I, I got really interested in science at a young age, but, um, I started studying permaculture design, which is a whole systems design science. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was really at that point, um, that I felt like, all right, like I'm studying this thing. I'm going to get certified in this thing. I feel like a scientist that kind of like, like, I don't know. A lot of people feel like they need to be certified to be able to say that they're doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but through that experience, which permaculture kind of really is a, in its roots and not, not really, I mean, like in, t in its totality and its roots is an indigenous design science. It's, it's, it's based off of studying indigenous technique and biomimicry, which is mimicking nature, mm. um, which is what most indigenous cultures do. Yep. You're, you're, you're um, defining so, permaculture, uh, right? With all that, like. That's, mm -hmm. that's how you would define. Yeah, yeah cool. So I was defining... going to ask you about that. Yeah, great. Yeah. So like with, with that understanding, like, why would I need any institution to say that I'm anything? So right. from there, I, I kind of felt more liberated in to say like, all right, this is what I'm doing. Like, I'm really actually doing this. So, um, I, so then again, for myself, I use the citizen science title just so that I'm not like 
as I navigate through these, this institutional world, I'm not like saying I'm something I'm not. Yeah. So like definitely. in the, in the West, if you were to say like, yeah, I'm a citizen doctor, like you will get in trouble. Like, you know what I mean? Like you can't go around doing right. doctor work and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, so like in order to like, so if I was going around saying I'm an actual scientist and stuff like that, and I didn't go to school and all that kind of stuff, like, you know, some people may have qualms with that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I practice scientific method outside of the scientific uh, uh, institutions. And there's a lot of people that do all sorts of things, everything from like 3D printing, building robots, uh, coding computers, um, studying uh, uh, minerals, um, uh, studying lizards. Like it doesn't there's so many things that that can be considered citizen science. I mean, mm-hmm. like like if you're you know, out mining uh, for crystals and studying the crystals in your local area. Um, uh, I mean, the mineralogists do that. I mean, yeah. if you're studying the waterways in your local area, you know, there's there's uh, uh, marine biologists and things that do that. Yeah. And, and you're also contributing to that, to that. So like the one thing I would ask or that I would say that would really wrap that all up is that real citizen scientists make their, their work publicly available. You know, mm-hmm. like, like the research for yourself is just like, for not like, like scientists put out research papers, scientists put out products or this through whatever company they're working through um, so that you can actually interface with the work that they've done. So mm-hmm. um, by practicing that scientific method, doing your science and then making that research available, um, I think that's what really makes up a citizen scientist. Well, I think it's also cool too, because you get to work on the projects that you want to work on and maybe start asking the questions that uh, are a little bit outside of what the traditional scientific institutional route is going or the types of questions they're asking or, you know, the types of just the types of experiments and things that you want to set up that you, that you actually, it's, I feel like it's, we're all furthering each other. I mean, I, Paul Stamets was probably like a very famous idea um, example of someone who is, I guess you would be, say he would be a citizen scientist too at one point and, and has really contributed so so much knowledge as well to the field of fungi where now the scientists are starting to be like, okay, cool. Like you're, you're helping us point us in the right direction. So I think everybody has a role to play here. And I also think it's a nice thing for people to hear that like, you don't need to have a science degree and you don't need to have all these things. Uh, You could still get curious and you can, you know, we've lived in an amazing world out here. And so what I would ask you is like, how, if people were interested in, in getting involved in citizen sciences, like, how did you do it? How did you get, gain this information and this knowledge and educate yourself? Um, so prior to, uh, like, getting my permaculture design certification or anything like that, I was, like, really interested and um, passionate about making music or um uh, growing cannabis or growing food or um, meditating or whatever, I would just get really passionate about certain things. And I would always use my passionate energy to uh, translate into educating or educating myself, at least. Um, so in my teenage years, like right before I dropped out of high school, I taught myself how to use different DAWs on the computer for recording music. So like Logic and and GarageBand and um, uh, uh, FL Studios and different programs and things like this. Um, and then I got all the equipment and taught myself how to do it. And I did that all off passionate energy. Like nobody taught me how to do all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Um, and uh, I also started using YouTube in 2007. 
and I started posting on YouTube in 2007 and watching YouTube videos in 2007. And I started seeing people make money off of it when I was still in high school. I knew that that there was money to be made on the internet. Um, so I was like trying to figure out how to market myself on the internet while I was mm -hmm. still in high school. And I figured out how to use Photoshop and all those things translated into like business stuff later on that helped me um, with figuring out how to learn other things or figuring mm -hmm. out how to even afford to learn other things because mm -hmm. learning stuff isn't free. Even if you don't go, I mean, like, unless you're just strictly going to the library and using their internet or something, learning stuff costs money at some, at some point. Yeah. Um, so with all of those things under my belt, like, um, and the reason I brought up YouTube, because like being savvy with, with using YouTube, I've seen as an advantage that, like I didn't necessarily think it was that cool or anything before, but like being able to like find real information through all of the crap of people regurgitating other stuff that they saw or all these videos that are like not even uh, authentic for lack of better words, then then uh, once you really find out how to use it, you can always find the people that are really doing really cool stuff. Um, and uh, through YouTube and reading books, um, I started to develop what I called a non-traditional independent education system. That was my first permaculture design. Like my first whole system design that I created was called non-traditional independent education systems. It was my version of a higher education. I didn't want to like, I didn't want to be like left out from all my friends that were going to college and stuff like that around the same time I was doing these things. Mm -hmm. um, all my friends were going to college and doing the regular thing. And I was like, I still want to learn. I still want to better myself and figure out how to, how to become what I want to be in this world. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, well, I'm in interested in is like growing cannabis and like growing food and like uh like going outside and being in nature how do I figure out you know how to make a living doing that those things and like also how do I figure out how to like be an expert in those things mm -hmm. so I'm like finding the experts on YouTube I'm reading the books from the different experts and then I started to realize like in my late teens that um a lot of times people that are experts in different fields, especially if they write books, do tours or teaching tours or yeah. they go do book signings and things like this, or they maybe will host workshops. So I started to realize that like around the U.S. there's different festivals, there's different events where like all these people that write books and put YouTube videos are like have an in-person interaction that you can meet them. So like I would watch all these people's videos, I would read all their books, and then I would figure out where I can meet them closest to where I live, which I live in, in central Pennsylvania in like 40% of the US population is in a day's drive up here. So a lot of people end up within like New York City or Philadelphia or something like that close mm -hmm. to me, enough to me that I can go see them. Um, so uh, I would I would wait till I could get enough money to go see them. I did crowdfunding sometimes like on like GoFundMe or things like that. I was like, hey, nobody knows how to do this thing where we live. I'll go learn how to do it. And then I'll teach people back here how to do it. Oh, it was cool. hard to sell people on that. It was really freaking hard to sell people I'm on sure. that. I'm sure, I'm sure. I got a couple people to, to, to bite on it and uh, um, I, I was able to afford to go to these classes because like I used to like serve tables and I had my, my son was born when I was 20 years old and like I just like I said I dropped out of high school so like mm -hmm. it was like not easy to get money to go do all this stuff back then. I mean but um, good on you like talk about carving out your own life and just being like okay I'm gonna do this differently. <laughs> Seriously like you really like created your own there you didn't follow a, a path at all this is this is the Will Padilla Brown path that you carved out. And it's like a nice way to give like permission to people to be like, look, we can do anything, you know, and, and it's not always easy. And mm -hmm. I like that you're like caveating that. Like, yeah, it took in the beginning, uh, all things in the beginning, like there's a little bit of that uphill, that 
you know, perseverance, if you will, to get things going. But if you've got that passion and you believe in something in a, a new way, and obviously it sounds like permaculture is a, a just, you know, sustainable agriculture solutions are a big passion for you. That's the drive you need. And you found a way. And, mm-hmm. and when you when you do align to purpose, I feel like this is the universe. The universe blesses us when, you know, when we're on the path, you know? And so it sounds like that's really, you really, it sounds like that's, mm-hmm. that's been it. And like, you're now an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you've got your own business and we'll get into microsymbiotics and all that, but like, what, what a cool path. Talk to us a little bit more about permaculture in general. And, you know, w- what's another like example of permaculture for people and, and really uh, how, how scalable is it? You know, like how, how much can people like really adopt this, philosophy and and really put this into practice okay so um permaculture and it's like in its contemporary definition um was defined by some um australians uh, in particular a gentleman named bill mollison mm-hmm. um by studying indigenous land practices of the aboriginal people there um so permaculture uh, as i mentioned before is a whole system design science so what does that mean like it's a science for designing whole system. So it's not particularly like agriculturally focused, although that's what it's been seen as perceived as and utilized for mostly Mm. is for land based agriculture type systems. But it's a system, it's a science that uses biomimicry, bio life mimicking life. So like it's a science that, that for the main tools of our of our design, we look at nature, and how nature is interacting or how, how this plant is living or how this water moves through this landscape or how this animal is, is formed, how, the, how this beetle or this dragonfly has the best flight pattern or things like this. We look at these kinds of things and say, if we made, if we designed our systems this way, if we designed our vehicle this way, if we designed uh-huh. our social system, the way these termites or these bees work, then like it would be more effective than the ones that we see that keeps failing. Cause uh-huh. we've made so many social systems that fail. Mm-hmm. We made so many agricultural systems that fail. But for millions of years, nature has carved out and like specifically selected for things that work and things that don't work literally just don't work. So that's the best tool that that we could ever use for designing things. So um, different examples. I mean, down in Oaxaca, I was like only three hours away from the oldest living bridge in the world, like where where these peoples for, for their been working with their great dead great grandparents and their unborn grandchildren to keep weaving the roots of this tree together these two trees together that creates this living bridge across this across this gap in space that needs to be covered so so um that's a really cool uh permaculture technique um i think the the um dynamic potato variations that we see in peru is a is an incredible generational permaculture technique again of people working with their ancestors and their unborn grandchildren to create these um, dynamic varieties of potatoes that are specific to these different mountain uh, uh, communities in Peru. Um, I think that's a really great example of permaculture. I have a, I have a quick question um, about it, actually. So on that, on that, so you, you're when you're saying uh, working with their ancestors and their unborn children, how how exactly through plant medicine, through meditation, could do you do you have a sense of like how they're doing that or what their process is in doing that? There's no way in telling like all right, they specifically know that they're like tapping and doing these kinds of things. But like, in order to have some of the things that we have, it takes like, it takes working with like your great, your great grandparents and working with people that you know, are not born yet. So to have domesticated food crops, like we have, like, 
tomatoes, corn, um, cabbage, kale, all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It took somebody working with somebody that was dead and also somebody working with somebody that wasn't born yet for it to get into the form that we have that it is right now. Mm -hmm. So you can say that they're cooperating or you can say that it was just happenstance that somebody just kept working it into that form. That's just my way of viewing it. Sure, sure, um, sure, sure. It kind of goes off of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs up into a greater uh, understanding of like beyond self-actualization is like community actualization and generational actualization that there is some level of consciousness that like is very aware of the of of life and is like has actually something happening right now yeah um but that's like a whole different thing to talk about in its own but to talk about some more contemporary um types of permaculture systems um we've seen uh algae wastewater systems where we have um the wastewater from an urban area or from a farm site being uh, filtered through algae. So we see algal blooms, like we're having a terrible algal bloom in San Francisco, Oakland area right now. These fish are dying because billions of gallons of raw sewage is getting dumped into the fresh water. Um, so these, alg these algae are blooming because of the nutrients in the water. So there's, there's wastewater systems that intercept the waste nutrients before it goes into a water stream, grows algae that can be used to create biofuels or used to be create fertilizers or feed for different animals, all sorts of different types of things, depending on what type of wastewater you're putting into mm -hmm. it. But, but you can intercept within, with a life, with a system of life that specifically would come anyways if, from that system. Right. So you use like, are like, we're like, all right, algae will bloom when there's a lot of nutrients in the water. That's, a, that's biomimicry, right? Let's like take that and figure out how we can grow that in controlled systems. Um, so people are using algae now to create biofuels, um, biodiesel, all these different kinds of things. Algae is a really great oil producer. An uh, another really cool system um, is uh, black soldier fly production. It's these little flies that will eat all sorts of compost. Um, I've seen some really cool systems where people have them set up above a creek. So these little fly larvae eat like literally whatever. Like there's like all sorts of composting systems with insects, but different insects can only eat different things. These things can eat anything. So they eat all these scraps that nobody else wants to eat, makes great compost. And then when they're done eating, they harvest themselves. They literally crawl up to the top of the bin that they're in. So I've seen people set them up above nets over a creek. So the little worms fall into the creek and then it self-harvests fish for them. So oh, then they wow. can pull out fish and then they got the fish going. They got the compost being made. So there's all these like intuitive systems. And because we're like, especially in this modern age, all the dynamic experiences that humans have, we can create really intricate living systems. And, and that's something that I'm really passionate about, but those yeah, are some examples. So sounds like um, permaculture systems for, for social systems, for community systems, for home systems, for the way that you bring your groceries into your house and the way mm -hmm. that the trash goes out. And even in the permaculture system, there is no such thing as trash because in nature, there's no such thing as trash. There's no yeah. such thing as waste. It's just stuff in the wrong place. Right. So there's like, we got to figure out better systems for all these things. So just to end it, I implore people to learn permaculture and recognize that every problem that they see in their life or in their community is the opportunity for a business. And that is a business that, that has the potential to be an ecologically regenerative, sustainable micro industry that helps bolster local community and combat what is the opposite of that, a macro industry that is antibiotic, a big industry that damages the life around it. Antibiotic, it kills the life around it. Mm. Like, so big warehouses, big things that are dumping uh, uh, waste, big things that are using so many trucks to carbon to go around, all this kind of stuff. We can combat that by finding the problems and making the solutions at home. Wow. Dang, mic drop. What's up, everyone? It's your host, Kat, with a quick announcement. 
If you have been listening to Trip on this and have been wishing that you could tell your story on the show, wish no further. I'm going to be adding four new bonus style episodes to Trip on this featuring your stories. If you're interested in coming on, head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. Once it posts, take a screenshot and email it to me with how psychedelics have changed your life. What I love about this is not only does it help me with discoverability and helping others find the show, but it also gives me a chance to connect with you all directly. So if you're interested, I will put more information in the writing of this episode. And with that, back to the show. Uh, that was, I mean, but, but I think also giving those examples of permaculture was really helpful because I was definitely, I understood it more from the agricultural side, but now understanding like, oh, this is a whole system literally the whole system I think is going to open up a lot of minds to thinking that and thank you for uh asking people to start thinking about it because I love the idea that there's no problems out here right that's basically what you're saying there's no problem there is a solution for everything and we just need to get creative and and like you're saying look to nature to see uh how do we put kind of our mess back together and that we can all do it on some it could be like a small project and that it can build from there my so I know psychedelics have been part of your path have you, has there ever been uh, a time in your life where you were on a psychedelic and you, whether directly or indirectly, got an idea for a permaculture idea, whether you're spending time in nature, or you're tripping and you're like, oh shit, if we brought the bees in here to pollinate this, you know, whatever, whatever the example is, is there anything that you can directly think of where you're like, yeah, this one psychedelic trip, I realized X, Y, Z, and I set off on this project <laughs> yeah i can there that happened a lot like a <laughs> lot a lot um but like the most potent one was the experience that i started my business off of so i had this really intense experience on lysergic acid diethylamide lsd um and i was having this out-of-body experience and it felt like i was like walking through time like time scenarios for lack of better words like mm -hmm. like if i move left it this like we'll go in a different timeline if i move Whoa. right it'll go like i was like really potent because like i don't know if anybody watches rick and morty but there's this one episode where he has a time crystal in his head and like he wants to stay in this one timeline and every time he moves it'll like he, it'll go a different timeline so he wants to stay in the one he tries to like keep staying in the one mm -hmm. so like i felt like there was like this one timeline where like I can be my express myself the way I want to express myself and like make and bring myself into this world the way I want to bring myself in this world and make the life for my family the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And it kept like coming back to like me needing to be healthy and stuff. Like mm -hmm. it was like this weird dynamic multidimensional experience. And I came out of it and I was like, homeostasis can only be achieved with symbiosis with local systems, ecological and social. And like saying that in English was like, the best and closest thing I could come to explaining all the crazy things that I saw. Wow. And it's only crazy because we don't have the words to explain it or ineffable. It, it was the best way to explain the ineffable things that I saw, things that lack explanation. Yeah. Can you say um, it again? Because it was really good, but I want people to really get what you just said. Homeostasis can only be achieved via symbiosis with local systems, both ecological and social. I love it. Yep. Okay. Like I straight was like geeked on the floor, like came out of it and just <laughs> said some shit like that. Like my girl was like, yo, what the f like? She's but like, write like, that I, down I, that... though. <laughs> There's something there. <laughs> yo, straight up. Like, and, and I was, I was young. I don't want to say nothing, but like, but I was like younger whenever that shit was going on. And like, um, 
from that experience, like from what I saw from there was like, all right, if I like work with nature, like if I like, like I need nature, like I am nature, like I have to interface with nature to be alive in this reality. Mm -hmm. So like, if I can figure out how to be in balance with, with nature, I'll be, Mm -hmm. I'll find some sort of balance in my life. But like, as a human, I also have to be interacting with this social thing. Otherwise I'll be a hermit. And like, for me, that's not my vibe. Like, I'm like, I like people. Like yeah, yeah, people, yeah. people around these days are just like, fuck people. I hate people. Blah, I know. blah, blah. I'm not Try one of those people. I was like, I love people. Yo. It's what, why are we alive? Mm-hmm. Our friends mm-hmm. and love and like f- laughter. Like that's the best part about being yeah. human. I mean, personally. It might be for some people. Like I know a lot of people that like that solitude lifestyle, yeah. but like I live by myself for extended periods of time. And it's just like, not for me. Like I like the yeah. social interaction. So I'm just like for healthy mental state, and for me feeling like I have purpose in my life, I really feel like I need to interact with people. Yeah. So I'm like, I need to find balance and health in my society. Mm-hmm. So like, then it, like, I also saw it in this way, like, like I saw like, I was just a finger of an, of the human experience yeah. and like everybody else is playing another part of like being this experience. And mm-hmm. like, if I want to really be tapped in and I really want to be taken care of, it requires like a community that knows that, I have my purpose just like everybody else has their purpose and we all value each other. Yeah. Like I've really felt like there needed to be this, like everybody has to value each other's purpose so that we can really function together. Cause I was like, if nobody, if I can go get all the food that I need and get the clean water that I need, I also need the people around. I need to be able to combat the money. I need to be able to combat the, like all of the societal implications, which requires community. Mm-hmm. So like, I need people that are like, it takes a village to raise a kid. Like I have family. Like if I want to have like, the liberation to be the mind that I am I need <clears throat> assistance with my family like mm-hmm. and like all these different kinds of things so I started to really like seek out those things in my life and like honestly to answer your question that's like that may be like a really big broad one instead of just like yo, one time I saw something that was like no yo, like let me get these bees but like that was the one that really like set me into like creating my business because I was like the, the social thing the, the the biggest aspect that was the most valuable part of that for me was like I have to employ people because in this contemporary moment like those are the things that is constricting people from liberation those are the things that's constricting mm-hmm. people from like taking care of themselves or like or like getting to that point of homeostasis themselves like so many families so many families don't have that wealth that people are spending their whole lives working their life away and like I'm surrounded by a bunch of people like that a lot of my friends have been like in families that's been subjected to that kind of thing so I was like all right I need to employ as many people I can with ethical business so that we can all make sure that like the job that we're doing to pay for our lives so that we can be alive is something that we actually want to do with our life so we can live a life together doing something good so like that's why I started microsymbiotics and I was like all right how do I make an an ethical life like livelihood for as many people as I possibly can I need to make sure that the business that we're doing like makes our area better to live in, makes the water cleaner to drink, makes the air cleaner to breathe. It has to do that or else it's just like, doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Why the heck am I even here to yeah. contribute to like making the, making it worse for the next people beyond me? Thank you. And I feel like that's the kind of attitude that like what's good for, what's good for the whole is good for us and, and really, really getting behind that because obviously in a capitalist society, it's like, you know, uh, and you look at like the big corporations, it's, it's, you know, I'm going to get my bottom line and I don't really care what's I'm going to, my, my goal is the bottom line and it's not what's best for everyone. It's what's best for me. And, 
Um, and we're seeing, obviously, the ramifications of all of that, and especially on just mental health in general, right? And, and really, I think these are the businesses of the future that will be supported by this greater universe, by the flow of energy that says if you are creating not just what's good for you, but understanding what is good for you is actually what's best for others, and that we all kind of come from that place, that is how the world absolutely changes. And and having a, a service-oriented place, you know, even I'll give you an example of like, even when I'm working in business things and it's something like, you know, a clothes thing or something, I want to get something printed, really um, wanting to land in a very good place, let's say financially, with the partner who's going to be doing it, where um, they feel good and I feel good about where we're landing on the price of what we're going to do. That there's that that it's not just about how much can I get. I'm going to like beat them down, like browbeat them down and and finally get, you know, get what's best for me without thinking, okay, what's best for this person too? How do we actually create a real partnership here? How do they want to continue to work with me and um, where we ideate and it's a real partnership where we think about, okay, how, how can we actually cut costs for both of us? And, and how do we do this? But we've always, we're coming out of this, like, and I'm saying coming out because I'm projecting that out. I'm projecting out that we're coming out of a time where I got to get what's mine and fuck everybody else basically. And, mm-hmm. um, and that there, and, and, and really, really landing in the trust that there is enough for everyone. And that, there is an in the wealth uh, this that isn't the abundant mindset right it's not about hoarding it's the it's the trust in circulation which is what it sounds like you're talking about which is i got to circulate uh the funds the money because this is the grand message of circulation i'm going to give you for this service and then you're going to pay me for my service and then blah 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 right and we go around and that there's an that it's always that that's the trust that it's always coming back and that you can give more freely because you know it's coming back and the more I feel mm-hmm. like when we do give more freely, the more it does come back, you know? And it's like, people um, are going to have to test that themselves. But like, I find that that's very true. There's a, there was a, a great philosopher that used to live like 20 minutes away from me. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah, his name's Charles Eisenstein. He's, I mean, oh, yeah, he's yeah. still alive. He's yeah, out yeah, here totally. rolling around doing his thing. Um, but uh, I, I ended up like pulling weeds out of his yard when I was a young, like, like in my late teens, early 20s. And I got turned on to his books and then also realized a lot of the people in my area were also like turned on to his, his lectures that he was doing and communicating with them. Um, and he wrote a book called Sacred Economics. And in the book discussed gift, ec- gift economics. And in the gift economic system, the person that gives the most is the richest. Mm. Uh, and, I, and that's the world I would want to live in totally. more so than this capitalistic monetary system. And like, I know those words may be triggering for some people. Like I've had people trying to tell me that if I went into the wild and picked an apple off of the tree, that's me gaining capital from nature. But I don't really feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's like an, an energy exchange. But to whoever, however you want to define things, you ever you can define things. But mm-hmm. um, I've, I've, I'm a firm believer of that. Like the more you give, the more it comes back around. Like yeah. that's just the flow of, of nature. That's the flow of the universe. And exactly. like uh, I, I want to, and like. Even if, even if it wasn't, that's the world that I would rather live in rather than the world that people have projected upon me. So like, why right. wouldn't I want to pr- pursue that either way? Right. For sure. Have you ever grown your own psilocybin mushrooms? 
Yeah, I believe it's beyond the statute of limitations at this point. But yeah, that was the first mushrooms that I ever grew that got me into like all of this. I mean, yeah. I did most of my stuff in my my young years. Like, I mean, I, I think it's also long enough away, but like I definitely got poked for, for cultivating in places I shouldn't have been cultivating mm. uh, cannabis and things like that when I was younger. Um, crazy experiences getting pulled by canine units as a 17 year old. But really? luckily I was 17. You know what I mean? Because like when you're like you, you don't get charged as an adult and all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad. I'm just saying that all that stuff is behind me, and like everybody has their own experience. And I wouldn't recommend anybody do any of the things I say, but like maybe you know have your own experience. But uh, yeah, I was gonna yeah, say, so but I definitely, you, can, you can grow I, mushrooms I though rodeo, legally, right? You know, I got you can grow mushrooms legally, can't you? You just can't consume them. Yeah. Right. And and uh, and. You can grow mushrooms legally in different parts of the United States, mm-hmm. but yeah, it just depends on where you're at. So like, um, that's a lot, a lot of my travel over the past couple of years has been to go to places where laws are changing or things are being decriminalized and stuff like that. So like the closest place to where I live is DC. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to go like cultivate mushrooms or play in any experience like that, I would have to go to, uh, to DC, which is funny. People think it's like, Oh, the capital of our country, whatever. But now that's, that's where I would have to go. Um, but so yeah, um, uh long time ago i did i did cultivate uh mushrooms and that was the first mushrooms that i cultivated and it used to feel like they were like they were like talking to me like Mm -hmm. they used i used to grow them at the end of my bed and like when i would be sleeping at nighttime i felt like they were like telling me things or like i would get these like like very particular dreams that was like not like any dreams i ever had before and it felt like it was just like direct messages uh and like i mean i the and then they, they, i mean then can, in consumption of them that was also like some of the first times i ever ate fresh mushrooms mm-hmm. you know now if i was ever gonna eat fresh mushrooms i would cook them like eating them raw is absolutely foul to me but really <laughs> a lot of a lot of cultures do that you know like the zapotec people like where we were in oaxaca they, they eat them raw just fresh it's intense like like i like for so long i was like all right like they're disgusting because it's part of the medicine and like they make you puke and like make your stomach hurt because like that's part of the experience and then i'm just like after so after so many times, I'm just like, yo, am I being sadistic? Like, am I <laughs> yeah, like looking yeah. to like torture myself or like eat this nasty shit for yeah, some reason? Because yeah. like I know I can make a tea and I will get it equally as geek and it will not make me puke and be as nasty and stuff. So I'm just like, yeah, like why am I doing this to myself? I know. You know? So it's like tradition uh, or something. You're just like, I guess this is what it will always happen before. But you're like, mm, can we can we alter? Can we can we just like it's a it's just like an addendum like. But tea's nicer, and you're right. You don't get the nausea or the, yeah, you don't, it's all the cellulose, right? Like all the, I had a Acacia Lewis on talking about it, and I was, we were talking just about this because she talks about eating like very high dose psilocybin uh, mm-hmm. mushrooms. But like as, as the mushroom, I was like, how, girl, how did your stomach like do Boy. it? She, she went through her own process. But... Yeah, I'd be like, oh, I'd be hurt. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And, and, and like, it reminds me of this story of like um, the woman that like cut the ends off of her roast beef or something that before she put it in the oven and she's like, somebody asked her, why you cut the ends off your roast beef when you put it in the oven? And then she's like, my mom did it. And she asked her mom, she's like, why'd you do it? She's like, my mom did it. And she asked that mom and she's like, oh, cause the oven was too small. And like, there was a, there was a reason at some point that maybe we don't know, but like it's 2022 right now. And I'm saying like, we can, we can show respects to, to cultures that that we learn things from but like i don't i don't think it's always necessary to subject ourselves to all of those things or to be doing same things like 
just the good old way and especially when you don't know why like, yeah yeah because like for that same reason we're perpetuating what i call the colonial zombie where a bunch of people are running around saying like our founding fathers said blah 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 and they <laughs> yeah. have no idea why we're still like marching this march that somebody said that we should do that's like some old patriarchal fucking roman catholic dude from like 200 years ago right right like right. why are you still fucking following his dreams mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, you know what i mean so like mm-hmm. i think that it's like it's important to like ask these questions like yo what am i actually doing you yeah. know no, so I um i think it's also uh, especially with like mushrooms cultivating your own relationship with them is really important and like you're saying like mm-hmm. pay homage to uh the cultures that came from before learn from them but then also make it your own it's your own life at the end of the day like i think mm-hmm. that goes for everything too like do what feels right at the end of the day like only you know what's actually right for you and that, that's just about mm-hmm. cultivating intuition and your own relationship and, and trial and error sometimes, you know, like, especially if you're going to be working with things like mushrooms and stuff, like what's a sweet spot for your dose. So you might find out that it's, you went too heavy on this one and it's not going to be that fun. Or you might go a little, this type of mushroom or the way you consume it. And like, that's just part, I think of this journey that you can, you could do your best in figuring out like, especially if you're new to it. Um, you know, I think there's some like, probably like, good middle ground that works for most people but again it's like everybody's different everybody Mm -hmm. is different you know like and how it's gonna affect Uh, you is gonna be different and that's the that's the thing that i think it's gonna be a good conversation around psychedelics because like i talk about people talk ask me about dosages and things and i'm like look depending on the mushroom you have 0.5 might send you flying or you might not even barely feel it might be just like a nice glow depending on the person, like a gram and a half might be like nice or someone and somebody else is tripping their face off. And like, you're not going to know until you just kind of, it's about experimenting a little bit safely and educating yourself. And then ultimately, yeah, it's a little trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any, sure. do you have any, I, I won't, I won't, cause it sounds like you're not really like engaging in the growing of psilocybin anymore, but how did you go about choosing spores? Like, I just want also people to, because there's a lot of, I think for science purposes only, most, there's about, in 48 states, you can order them and you can grow them. Mm-hmm. You can't necessarily consume them, everyone, but you can, as a citizen scientist, uh, you could just grow them for the research purposes. Do you know what you can spores? Have them for microscopy. What? It says uh, you can have them for microscopy. Is that what, what it says? says on all of them. <laughs> yeah, research for microscopy. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Microscopy. I can't even say it. Microscopy. Forget it. What he said. <laughs> um, is there is there any particular spores that are easier for people to work with that you know of? Um, I mean, in general, cubenzi spores are like the best. Like they're in that has like the most variety of them. So like people get real confused, like because there's so many different varieties of it. But yeah. Um, Psilocybe cubensis is, is the easiest. It grows on soil, you know, I mean, it grows on like cow poops and a lot of people are figuring out how to grow it on like coconut husks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like all sorts of people that are making substrates specifically for Psilocybe cubensis. So that one's like super, super easy to start working with. So like, I wouldn't get like thrown off by like penis envy or B plus or anything like that, unless you're getting uh, spores specifically from, from like some private community groups online or something like that and, and somebody's saying like yo particularly this one like is finicky or something like that because a lot of people have mutant strains now because they've been inbred for so long like 
some of the strains that people are working with, maybe uh, mycologists went out in like the like seventies or something like that and found the, the specimen in the wild. Mm-hmm. And then like has been, people have been selling the spores and like making it make spores and growing it and making it make spores. And like, it's literally been inbred with itself, like a hundred times or something. Like uh-huh. and now they're making like, not even making mushrooms anymore. It's making like weird formations and stuff like that, that like, looks weird and funky and like yeah. all sorts of stuff and people love it i mean it still gets you tripped out but like there's like all sorts of variations now that are maybe a little bit more finicky but if you're getting a general sloth cubensis which could be b plus golden teacher albino penis envy all of those are still cubensis mm-hmm. those are generally easy to cultivate cool. um, there's all sorts of other varieties actually like the easiest easiest is truffles like sloth like okay. psilocybin truffles so like mm-hmm. the like um tampanensis or the um the mexicana mm-hmm. the tampanensis and the mexicana mm-hmm. um they make sclerotia uh which they form particularly because the areas that they grow in gets really dry and mm-hmm. so they make these little hard nuggets underground so when it rains again then the mushroom grows off of it um but you can just grow those in bags of grains like it literally doesn't even make mushrooms come out um super industry yeah, like super discreet doesn't look like really much of anything you can grow them in mm-hmm. a jar of grains um you put the culture in there and then it just grows these little truffles in it after like a couple months cool um and they're pretty potent you just get these little psychedelic nuggets that comes yeah. out that's what um, you have in amsterdam and, and, yeah. for those who have been there that's that's what they that's what mm-hmm. they all those little mushroom shops that you see they're all mm-hmm. they're 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 definitely stronger than i thought I was yeah they're super strong they're super acrid mm-hmm. it's like a weird battery taste it's like nuts. it's like sour to me like at least the ones we yeah, had yeah. it was almost like a weird lemon it was not it tasted uh, nothing like a mushroom actually nothing at all yeah. I was like I have no idea what this is it was a whole journey every time we went for another truffle but anyway we had a good time <laughs> yeah. we had and fun chocolate too is dangerous yeah Ooh, yeah they, yeah yeah like a, like nuts in the chocolate totally 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 what kind of conditions you know like you said you had them on the end of your bed were they not in the dark like were, were oh like you... i mean like i had them in a little bin i would just like cover it up with like a blanket oh gotcha gotcha yeah yeah was it, it was so... like a general like monotub bin that people have with like you know polyester fiber in the side of it and stuff like that was the santa like making it you know i know the the biggest thing that i hear with growing mushrooms has always been around just um uh, what's it called when when like a mold grows on it um trichoderma gets infected contaminated yeah because like i guess the conditions the air wasn't clean enough or whatever like how how mm-hmm. how uh do you, does it have to be like straight up like lysoled out like does it have to be like very surgical or or is it not as um, finicky n- as not, not necessarily like in the parts where you're like actually like expanding it and breaking it up and letting it grow into more material that's the parts where you need to be the cleanest but um not necessarily and like now that it's like becoming legal and stuff like that more people are going to probably be growing them outside seasonally just because like nobody like not that many people i know unless they're having like cluster headaches or like having seizures and stuff like that and they like need to take a like significant amount every day um uh, most people are not like needing a whole bunch so yeah. if they just grow them in like a patch of mulch in their yard or something like that, mm-hmm. like they'll have enough every year. So I think more people are going to go towards that, which really is just like you buy some spawn or you make some spawn at one, like just one time and then spread it into some wood chips in your yard. You don't have to be clean about it whatsoever. The wood chips just need to be significantly fresh. You like put some cardboard underneath it to like block out the grass or weeds and make sure no other fungi comes from under out of the ground. And uh, literally when it rains in the right season, you'll just get like 
bunch of uh, mushrooms growing in your yard then cool. you can dry them out even in the sun and like get that whole vibe going and like just be good for the rest of the year really yeah. i mean for every if every household had like like in their flower mulch patch in the front or like every apartment complex had a, like some mulch patch in the fucking in the landscaping and that every it could supply for everybody that needs it oh my god and like usually so cool. like yeah like here in central pennsylvania um uh we have a wild variety called Salasbi ovoidio cystidiata that just grows in mulch out here anyways mm -hmm. so like we don't have to do anything it just if you know where to go, like there's certain places, certain parks, certain universities, certain buildings, office buildings that just they're just everywhere. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's really good places all around the, the country to go taste your local terroir. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's cool. I, it's it's nice that we're I mean, with all the decriminalizations happening right now, it's it's very I'm sure we'll see a lot more of that popping up. And so I think San Francisco mm -hmm. makes it the ninth city, including like you're saying, Washington, D.C. It's I think it's going to keep keep on keeping on like I think at least that is going to be opening the door and and that's why I want to talk about this because I think a lot of people um one of my one of the big things that I think a lot of people are now wondering is like well where do I get them and how and of course as somebody with the podcast I can't ever answer that and you know but uh I think growing is going to be an interesting place for people to go and to take mm -hmm. it into their own hands and and to start to cultivate their own relationship again with with mushrooms and and the growing process including myself i still need to get on it i still haven't but it's it's on the list they keep just like beckoning me they're like anytime i'm like okay <laughs> i'll get there <laughs> uh my next question was let's come back to now like foraging uh so what kind of resources would you recommend for foraging whether that's for any kind of mushroom like what What's some of the things that like you wish you knew? I, this is another question I get asked a lot. And as somebody who does tons of foraging of all different types of mushrooms, what are the resources you go to? What do you look out for? What's your process? I love iNaturalist now. That wasn't something that I had whenever I was younger. Um, it's a great application that you can take pictures of what you find and post it and then say, I think this is this. And then other people will be like, no, this is this or whatever. Oh, cool. iNaturalist now? iNaturalist. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, um, yeah. So after people confirm what it is, um, then it's in this database that also gets put onto this application called seek. Mm -hmm. Um, and seek is better for people that don't necessarily know how to identify stuff. You can just open your phone and it'll like use the camera to, to, um, uh, like cross that picture versus like all the other pictures that people uploaded on iNaturalist to mm -hmm. say like, this may be this species. So, you can use seek by iNaturalist to just like go look around and it'll say like this, we think it's this, but don't let the robot tell you for sure that it is what it is. Like definitely like ask a person that has some experience or like there's lots of really great Facebook groups online regionally. So like where you're at in the country, there may be a Facebook group that's like for foraging specifically where you're at. Um, and those are always really good. Like people might not share their spots, but they'll share like, if you like post like, what is this that I found? Somebody will be like, um oh this is this and like people love to be like competitive about it too like there's all every group has the one person that's like oh that's the guy that always will answer it or something mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um the so expert. those are really helpful <laughs> yeah just make sure you can take good pictures like like if you're taking pictures of plants or mushrooms or anything like that like 
um, you know, take a picture of the top, the bottom, where it's at, like a picture of like it in the environment, a picture of it up close. Like, mm. so people that when they're looking at it, they can really identify. If you just take one picture of it and it's like kind of blurry, like it's gonna be hard for people to figure out what it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, make sure you take the pictures and join some of those groups online. And then um, regionally, there's mushroom clubs all around the country. So you can join a mushroom club. Um, you can check out the North American Mycological Association. It's called NAMA. If you just search NAMA mushrooms on Google, um, you can go through there to find your club that's in your area. Cool. Um, those clubs meet once a month to go foraging. And then they have a bunch of experts that are just like part of the club that will identify what you find and stuff like that. Amazing. And so you can um, be a complete novice and just like meet up and want to just like hook up with people that are already on this path and they can kind of teach you and meet other people in the space. Mm-hmm, for sure. Oh, cool. I love that. I'm so glad I asked you these questions. Awesome. Well, I'm going to make sure to put the links down there because again, like it's just also great to get out in nature and get curious about what we're doing. So let's finish up and talk about mycosymbiotic. What are you, what are you up to? What are you doing? How can people work with you? Tell us about it. Sweet. So yeah, um, mycosymbiotics is an ecological research business um, that is mostly funded by mushroom farming. Um, we, I've been, I started mycosymbiotics in 2015 and, um, have operated it in many different ways. So currently we just, uh, we have a farm operating in Lemoyne, Pennsylvania, where we're growing mushrooms, uh, indoors. Um, we have another farm operating in Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, where we're growing mushrooms outdoors. Um, and we sell those mushrooms at local farmer's markets and we use those mushrooms to create our product line. So we have a line of tinctures. Uh, we have a line of concentrated mushroom extracts, which we mostly sell wholesale for other companies that would like to incorporate mushrooms into their products. Um, and uh, we have a line of cacao, ceremonial cacao, um, that utilizes uh, cacao source from a Mayan women's collective in Guatemala that I connected with last year. Um, we have a line of hot sauce that utilizes our friend's locally grown hot sauce uh, or peppers that he ferments himself. Um, incorporated with our mushrooms. Everything's incorporated with our mushrooms. And mm. we have a line of salt that's made by uh, our friend um, that's a chef in Tennessee, um, fermented that and uses salt from Oaxaca, Mexico. Nice. Um, there, there's a salt produced over there. So um, uh, yeah, so like all of our, uh, all of our products that we create, um, we try and collaborate with people that are experts in whatever it is that they're creating or crafts, uh, crafts people, artisans. Um, and then, you know, uh, let them work with our mushrooms and incorporate it into their product in uh, whatever way. So there's a couple products that we will have, like always, and then some things that we fluctuate through, like the hot sauce and the soaps and um, things like that. Um, and uh, we also sell cultures for people to grow their own mushrooms, awesome. you know, medicinal gourmet mushrooms, mm-hmm. um, non-psychoactive stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um we offer educational services uh, all, anywhere in the world. You can hire us to go do uh, educational services. Um, so yeah, uh, and we host MycoFest, which is our headlining uh, festival, first weekend of August every year. Um, some of the ecological research that we do is DNA barcoding, uh, uh, genetic analytics. Um, we do um, private services. We will we'll breed out specific specialized strains of mushrooms for people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, um, we develop cultivation techniques for different mushrooms. So, cool. um, I've developed cultivation techniques for cordyceps militaris mushrooms. We've also developed cultivation techniques for ishnoderma resinosum, uh, 
And uh, we've been working with Blobby Foamies for VLNs also. So nice. uh, mushrooms that are just under-researched, we kind of work with those and see, you know, um, can it be used for uh, any economic purposes, any medicinal purposes, whatever, uh, food, and then can, how can we grow it? Nice. Awesome. Well, I'm going to make sure to link all of your stuff here. Will, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. And for everyone, as always, trip on this. Thank you all so much for listening. If you're enjoying trip on this, definitely be sure to hit that subscribe button, like, and share it with a friend. Also, if you're interested in more content from me, I have a second podcast called Life with Cat Walsh. This is a personal journal style podcast where I talk really about the raw, vulnerable nature of being alive, of being on an entrepreneurial path, of being on a spiritual awakening path. And so I share in all that I'm learning, my pitfalls, and anything that's coming up in the hope that it helps you along your own journey. So if you're interested, definitely head over and check that out. Life with Cat Walsh is also available on YouTube and all podcast platforms. I'll see you guys next time.